Welcome, travelers. I'm Josh. I'm Glenn. And I'm Lee Wanika. This is Tabletop Journeys, where we will be your humble guides along the journey to RPG adventures. We are all D&D role players and storytellers at heart. It's where we started out, and it's where we find ourselves most at home. So here in our main podcast episodes, we discuss the core rules, how to use them as written, and how to homebrew your own content to get the most out of your story. Because detailed settings, heroic characters, vibrant NPCs, and a focus on story over rules is what makes a campaign legendary. Here's a message from friends of the show. Snide's Return is a tabletop role-playing game interviews and actual play podcast. We interview content creators, Twitch streamers, and fellow podcasters, and we put out our own actual play using a variety of different systems. So come and join us, come and have a listen. You can find us on Twitter at Return Snyder. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, or check out our website at www.snidesreturn.com. .squarespace.com Welcome back everybody. We are now diving into part 2 of our cleric subclass review. Uh I strongly encourage that if you have not yet listened to episode one, do that because uh, there is probably about 20 or 25 minutes of introduction into that episode about sort of how we did this and some of the challenges that we had and and uh, some really key information, I think, that's going to help make these rankings make more sense. Uh, so please make sure that you have listened to, uh, to part one before diving in here because we still have nine subclasses to go, so we're not going to go through all of that again. Uh, not that I think that any of us could even remember what it was we said a week ago we're just going to go ahead and dive in continue going on with the same methodology and we're going to start again with the next subclass that's in the player's handbook this is the trickery domain you know i'm going to say something similar about this subclass that i did about the tempest subclass and that's that man i really wanted this to be better (laughs) you know how many times have we said that about various subclasses that like man it just seems like it would just be so it could be so great you know you rock rock you could have been a contender you know it really you know it just but it's just mechanically it's not good the flavor falls short through the mechanics i gra- i graded it really high on on its wild card scale because i wanted it to be so much better than it actually was but at the end of the day collectively we ranked it second from the bottom when all of our scores were, were tallied up here so so I looked at the trickery domain and I honestly think I have revealed something having done several classes at this point. I've, I've realized something about myself. I don't like trickery, which is odd because I'm big on strategy. I'm big on finding ways in and out. And I love the RP feel of things, but I have consistently found that any mechanics surrounding trickery fall short for me as a player because I think, quite honestly, I naturally do them better. And so 
tying myself to mechanics that don't consistently work or that don't work consistently isn't helpful to me. Trickery in general, I can RP and get my way into it better than relying on mechanics that cut me off of other mechanics that could be helpful in other elements of the game. Right. Why play a trickster cleric when you can play another class that gives you better mechanics and RP the trickster element? Element, yeah. Yeah. You know, I can pick the few spells that it's going to grant that are slightly different. I can pick initiate or I can just select those spells. Will I have the features? No, absolutely not. But I'll have other features and I will just put my number two stat into charisma and rely on persuasion, deception, and I already have great insight, so I know what's going to work on a consistent basis. So I'll just skill my way through making the spells work. And that's why this falls flat for mechanics for me. It's not so much that all of them are bad. It's just that none of them are better than anything else that I would want to pick. I rank it bottom for mechanics. And for flavor, again, if the mechanics aren't helping you get there, how much flavor can it truly have? I'm going to actually take that a step further and say that I actually think its mechanics are pretty bad at the end of the day. Like, it has this kind of neat version of mirror image that it gets at second level, and there is no scaling whatsoever on that. Like, you get one at second level, and you keep one at second level, until all of a sudden when you get to seventh level, you get four of them. Which, that's pretty powerful at 17th level, but I just, I would have liked to see some some progression there. Like, you know, you get one at second level, you get two at eighth level, you get three at 14th level, and... You you know, it's just something that kind of gives it some some sense of shape or progression or or something. I would agree. I hadn't actually thought about that in terms of a way to scale it through earlier. Like with that channel divinity ability, they could have done at two you get one image, at six you get two as a, as a scale up or tie it to your proficiency bonus. Because the improved duplicity at the end is kind of groovy. But I mean, all in all, I think the biggest problem with the trickery cleric is everybody wants to like the idea of the trickery cleric you know we want it to be a lot why because we love loki but let's be honest there's a reason that loki doesn't usually land in the hero group because even if you do just nothing but innocent pranks if you are somebody who constantly is a trickster you're going to know your party you're going to annoy the townsfolk this is a domain that i think makes an awesome amazing npc that you could use to drive plot with i mean what thieves guild couldn't use a cleric of trickery on hand right before a major heist who can, by touch, give anybody advantage on dexterity stealth checks for an hour. If I was going to play it as a player, I'd want to be playing it in a stealth group. I'd want to be playing it. This is the cleric I'd play. If somebody pitched me a group like my family group does in my game, because they're all stealth characters, all of them. If I let them sneak out at night, everybody dies. This is the cleric I'd play in that group. Who is, who is a trickery cleric? The Irishman in Braveheart is a trickery cleric. Josh, you have finally done it. Just like Glenn gave me a a template for the nature domain, you have given me the template for the trickery domain. I could now mark this slightly higher for want to play because the Irish character was my favorite character in Braveheart. And I think he didn't go over that line of annoying everybody. And he didn't go over the line of just getting in trouble. But even in the context of that story... Other than him holding his own in a fight. Oh, yeah. He was still badass, yeah. But aside from that, he didn't do much to drive the story. He was comic relief. That's a theatrical device that exists. 
Right. And so while that is necessary and that is great at a game table, it's slightly different. There is no main player character and secondary characters. Everybody has to be a bit of a main character. So what makes it hard is in order for somebody like that to be a main character, that means his abilities have to rise up to a higher level and in that rising not become annoying. And that's where you lose friends and do not influence people. Right. And that's where I think the problem with the trickery player comes in. So if I'm playing the role and I'm okay with effectively being that C-list character, and I don't mean that pejoratively, but if I'm okay with, I'm going to be the comic relief. I'll hold my own in all the different aspects of the game, but I am specifically not designed to have a moment to shine. If I'm okay with that, I could do that. But generally, I'm not playing this game to not shine. And that's why this falls to one for want to play. Some players can feel like they shine through helping other people shine. And support characters and people who play them are an amazing thing. So we don't want to downgrade that. But it is hard to be the guy who plays second fiddle. But let's be honest. Not everybody can be Buffy. I've said that before. There's nothing wrong with being Xander. He does great things in the show. If you set up a pirate crew, somebody's going to have to be captain. It's probably going to be the person with the most charisma. It's not specifically a reward. It's just a role that has to be filled. Um, but for the trickery, I mean, just a little bit of... Uh, foreshadowing slash vague spoiler alert for my players the trickery domain npc wise i wasn't kidding though and i keep saying npc npc has inspired me he, nobody's met him yet i haven't named him but i'm working on a trickery domain npc whose whole job is following the orders of whatever deity he serves and moving through the world as a force of chaos nudging events as he's told so to speak you know uh, maybe a kenku or a hexblood um, and I think it could be a lot of fun. And he's kind of an antithesis to another NPC that I've developed that I'll talk about a little bit later. Okay, next in the player's handbook, well, actually, the next two, one in the player's handbook and one in the Dungeon Master's Guide, pretty universally, the three of us ranked pretty high across the board. And so we're going to start with the war domain, which when you think about the quintessential warrior priest, like this, this is the domain that you that you think about. You think about war. We've talked about some other variations that could factor into this, but war is really where it is. I mean, it's built like a fighter. You get extra bonus attacks. You do extra damage. You get bonuses to your to hit. You get damage resistances you do you do just even additional weapon damage like even their 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 level eight kind of signature ability they don't even do like special damage it's just nope if i hit you with a hammer and i'm doing bludgeoning damage now i do more i, I do more bludgeoning damage it, it that's just yeah, it, just, it just hurts more yeah but like so like the ability to not only get your get a plus to hit for you but also to grant that to, to an ally that's really powerful. And so I, I graded it slightly over halfway on its mechanics, but I think its flavor is is fantastic. You know, honestly, the biggest hit that it took was its wild card points because it didn't need any wild card points because it was already badass and kind of exactly where I wanted it to be, right near the top of the pile. This is your, I mean, the, the Warforged cleric that I'm playing is a war cleric. You know, there's a whole bunch of backstory on why he's there and everything like that, but the, he is a war cleric. That's his job, is to hurt other people in the name of his chosen deity. So for me, I, uh, very similar to you, uh, rank the mechanic high for all the same reasons, rank the flavor high for all the same reasons. I reverse that a little bit. I have the mechanics higher than the flavor. And I guess it's part of, since cleric as a class is supposed to be fighter-y anyway, or capable anyway, while it did all those things very nicely, 
it didn't rise it above the the three others that I ranked higher than it for flavor, right? And while it was strong and it was in the top echelon, it didn't get better than the top three as strong as it was because honestly, clerics were already there or part of what like cleric did a lot of the heavy lifting here. This pushed it a little further. And while the push was strong, it wasn't enough to get better in flavor for me. As far as wild card, very similarly, I, it, there's nothing about it that wowed me. It was everything I anticipated it to be. It was everything I expected. There were no surprises here. It was just very strong. If anything, it was slightly stronger than I anticipated. But oddly, from just talking to the community, seeing how many I've seen played at Adventure League tables, I knew this was extremely powerful. I knew this was mechanically sound on the table and in the combat pillar of the game. So again, there just weren't surprises, which is why for me it was kind of midland for wildcard. As far as want to play, it's the higher end of, you know, five out of 10 is, is average. I marked it a seven that's better than average, but it, but it's not fantastic. And the reason is because as great as this class is, so don't get me wrong, this subclass is fantastic. My desire to play it is not as fantastic because like I said, everybody's already seen it, done it. Until I have something specific that I want to do and or a specific campaign where this needs to be held. Like, for instance, here's the game. We're playing a party of clerics and nobody has chosen this. I'm the last guy at the table. I would probably choose this because somebody needs the fight to be the fighteriest one. And for that reason, I would do so. And none of that is to take away from it. There's nothing to take away from this. So I think war, I think war is great. Um, and y'all have pretty much said most of it, so I'm not going to try to rehash. I'm just going to kind of gloss over some up and throw in a couple of things. Um, cause I ranked it high in both mechanics and flavor. Cause I think its abilities do nest really nicely. Um, between the way that it's domain spells focus on buffs, either self or the party and some damage just to give you that little bit of extra, but you get the martial weapons and the heavy armor. You're clearly the frontline battle priest of doom, right? But it also gives you that second bonus attack from first level. Like that's a third that's up to three potential attacks at first level as the frontline fighter, right? War of Priest isn't what I would choose if I was gonna have to play a cleric and because you're playing a part of party of clerics. War Priest, based on the way that 5e has redone it, is what I would choose if I was given the tank role and I didn't want to just play a straight up toe-to-toe fighter, if I didn't want to just be a fighter. This could be the flavor that I put on my tank because this build could tank. It could be your main damage d- dealer and soaker on the front line, um, but it doesn't have to be the main dealer. If you've got, if it can take the hits, you know, if you've got somebody mobile to help you deal the damage, that still works. You know, when I said earlier that clerics could fill every role, they really can. This could straight up be the tank of a party. It's it's a warrior first. Yeah, this is another character that you give the magic weapon to and pair it with something else, right? Pair it with with the light cleric that's going to give the enemies disadvantage or something like that, you know, but give it like a give it a flame sword and and have it do fire damage and then have other people kind of target the allies that or the the people that you're fighting to go ahead and give them disadvantage against fire and things like that. Cleric among anything else and this is the one thing that I think I've learned in this exercise is it is a synergistic character type. It works really well with what you put around it, and it works better when it's when, like a chess piece, it works best when it's put with complementary pieces. A bishop is exceptionally powerful when it's used as the anchor point for a stratagem. If you've got the bishop, 
if you've got one pawn and you've got a, a knight and a rook, now you've got a, a force that to be reckoned with. Moving on, we're going to go to kind of, I think, uh, again, a kind of complementary subclass. And this is the death subclass from the Dungeon Master's Guide. I think my, one of the first subclasses that we see exclusively kind of from the Dungeon Master's Guide, that wasn't very common. Most of them were in the Player's Handbook. This one only in the DM's Guide. When I'm looking at, you know, you talk about the flavor. We, we, we joked about this earlier about, uh, about the light cleric getting the light cantrip, you know. What does death get? Death gets a, nec- a necromancy cantrip. It gets, and but it also gets some nifty abilities. The ability to target two creatures with a with the necromantic cantrips instead of just one, uh, doing additional damage on successful melee attacks, and specifically necromantic damage. So its its flavor is, I mean, it is all about necromancy, right? And I think that that's really kind of, you know, I, I mean, this, we're going to talk about this one a little bit later and kind of compare and contrast the death cleric and the grave cleric. I I certainly had a preference between those two. Glenn, you clearly had a preference between the two author also. It's because they're totally different. They're totally different. It's even suggested in one of the other writings that they're similar, but they're totally different if you look at them. We'll get to that when we get to the we'll get to the grave cleric. But you know, again, I thought from a flavor point of view, death cleric strong. It kind of beat you over the head with that necromantic stuff. So interestingly enough, I thought it was surprising that this was even brought into the DMG at all in the early phases of Five E, because they were making a very strong decision to not give people mechanical support for building evil characters. And that's why it's in the DMG. I think they were not sold on the idea of all bad guys will be stat blocks versus we can have some character classes that are for bad guys. So this was put in there as, look, people are going to ask for this, so here's an example of it. If you had to do it, here's what it is. But also because, or to help you build a big bad guy. Like, this makes a great campaign ender. So I think that was kind of why it was done the way it was done. And then I think later they settled on just make bad guys stat blocks so DMs don't have to do all the, this hard work. It kind of stepped away from that. Why I think Grave Cleric is very different was Grave Cleric was designed, let's make a hero subclass that deals in necromancy or the death domain or something to that. Something to that. At least that was my take on But I love this from the simple perspective of this is how I'm going to build a bad guy. I don't think this works well as a player character. I don't want to play one as a player character. But I want to build the heck out of me out of an NPC for this. See, I, I, I totally disagree on that. I very much want to play one because of the strength of its abilities. I, I think that it's a look, it's not a good guy. You're absolutely right. And maybe this is my inner storyteller saying, I want to play this as an NPC, and maybe that's where that's coming from. But I actually I, I really had pretty keen desire to play it. I want to roll one, and because I role play my NPCs heavily, I would not stat block that type of character. I would fully design and build up a character at a level and have the full sheet at my disposal. I would do that. His minions may be stat blocks, but I would have the full sheet at my disposal in this case. So I would still get to play that. The only thing I think this type of character is working with are the dead that it creates. Yeah, you you are a basically good person, Lee, and you struggle with evil. The death domain definitely delves directly into it. it. It's not ashamed about it. That is why they put it in the Dungeon Master's Guide. And that's because, as a whole, D&D doesn't want to see, be seen as a, a game that's fomenting evil parties that are running around murder-hoboing towns. We've talked about this before. But now you're not just murder-hoboing them. You're murder-hoboing them, raising the dead and using them to assault the next town, right? Um, and that, that could be a problem. And I have two minds here, all right? 
as a storyteller and most of the games that I run and the style of game that I run, this is not an appropriate domain for a PC. But I do play in games, and I can play in a game where I could see myself making a necromancer-type character because I could play one, but usually if I play in a campaign that's going to have that kind of a seriously gray to evil bent, I'm on the upper side of evil. I'm not like the abomination evil guy, you know? I might not raise the dead just to have a bunch of random wandering corpses. There'd be a purpose. There'd be a reason. There'd be, you know. So, and I don't disagree with you, but here's my take on this. I get to play very infrequently. Actually, a lot more frequently now that we run an AP. uh, And and I'm in a couple other games. Uh, Thank you to... uh, I almost playing uh, too many games right now. Yeah, Streams of Spiro and uh, the guys at Basement Quest. But even at the amount of games I'm playing, I'm roughly playing once a month or every other week. Actually, most of the games I play in are once a month. That means if I'm going to play in a campaign, I'm going to play one adventure a month. That means 12 sessions in a year. Guaranteed we're skipping at least one of those months in a year. That means I'm getting 11 sessions in a year. Even if we were playing one session a level, that's a long time to be tipping my toe in that evil in that evil pond. I can tell you, if I was doing a one-shot, I would play the hell out of it. But an ongoing campaign, I would like at a certain point I would struggle and not want to play. And I think that's for me why the want to play, which actually sits above the halfway mark, because I want to play it as a DM and I want to have the bad guy be this thing. And my willingness to play it in a one shot is right high. If somebody says, hey, you're going to convention, you're going to be a player you're going to play a team of evil people doing evil things. I'm like, yeah, I could do that. I could do that. One shot? Absolutely. And I could have a lot of fun doing it. Ongoing campaign? Probably not so much. But let's dig in. Tell me about what you thought about the mechanics specifically, Glenn. Like, was it just a matter of fitting really well with the theme? How, how did you think about it? Mechanically, it's solid. It, it fits well with its, stop, with its abilities. You know, it gives you martial weapons, but not armor. So you've got a light warrior. You can handle yourself in hand-to-hand combat. All of its domain spells are centered around necromancy, just like you'd think they would be. You know, the ability to split targets and have two, that's hot, like Josh said before. I mean, all of its abilities stack well. It is a well-made mechanical class. Flavor-wise, so I gave it a nine in mechanics. I mean, it's not perfect, but flavor-wise, I gave it more in the middle range because, I mean, it's a necromancer. It's old hat. I love them as villains and NPCs. Which is why I put a middle of the road kind of just in general for everything else, because as a storyteller, I love them. As a PC, this definitely would not be the go-to for me. All right, let's dive out of the core rule books finally after the major chunk of our subdomains have been presented and start talking about the Arcana subdomain from Sword Coast. And this one struck me as kind of the first one where our opinions about this about this subclass were wildly different. I think that this was the lowest ranked subclass for me. Liwanika, it might have been the highest ranked for you. In fact, it was indeed the highest ranked for you by almost an entire point. Mine was was the lowest of, uh, of all of them. So I'm going to give the floor to you, sir. Tell me what I'm missing. For me, Arcana was all about the mechanics fitting what I wanted it to do. Um, I ranked it number two for mechanics. I ranked it number three for, uh, for flavor. And it's because of how that synergized. I thought, simply put, it just hit all the bells and whistles that I really wanted. 
um, solid spells for its domain spells. Uh, the proficiency is arcana. It really does fall in the duh column. Uh, I mean, you got to give that to them. So uh, kudos for doing the thing that you absolutely had to do. Um, but arcane initiate two wizard cantrips at level one uh, are awesome. Plus the arcana skill. Yeah, that's what we we're talking about earlier. Where light cantrip, meh. That's awesome. Yeah, but they got the skill to go with it, with it in this case. So wizard cantrips are are just really really good here, uh, and it works really well. There's a lot that adds this flavor. Arcane abjuration. Look, turning celestials, fey, or fiends is hot. It is very hot. It is hot. It is. I, I will. I will grant you that one. That for sure is. That's a powerful ability. And the fact that at level five, it you've moved it into the banishment realm, is another matter. Think about it this way: at level five, you're coming pretty close. By the time you're level six or seven, you're banishing displacer beasts. I, I, I mean, it is. It is solid. Look, when we were talking about Fey, you want a party. I want one of these clerics. If I'm going into the Fey realm, there's so many different ways to spin this flavor. I really like it. Spellbreaker. Wow. This is a great support character. I'm going to end an effect that's on you. It's like you. a free dispel magic just for healing. Yeah. I healed you and whatever effect they put on you is gone. So if they hit you with something that puts on the poison condition, no, they didn't. They hit you with something and now you're charmed. No, they didn't. This is the blue deck of the cleric world. This is a mother may I kind of character. They have that ability. And if you pick the right spells to go along with this. And Arcane Mastery is the capstone. Is I, I like that one, too. That's that's pretty hot. Wisdom Modifier, same as we've talked about before. It is neither detractor as compared to others because it doesn't scale as well as it should in that it starts a little bit lower than necessary. I think tying something to the Wisdom Modifier, which even if you're doing all the things you should do, let's say you cap out at five, it never gets better. Uh if you're going to do something that does not scale, do it earlier so at least it's more beneficial. Like, put this at level, uh, as much as I love the second level, I would actually put this at level two and kick everything down a level, and that makes more sense to me. It's, it's bizarre and strange. I mean, you have to do a little weird thing with the banishment thing, but it actually, I think, makes that banishment because there's a lot of fey and a lot of fiends and a lot of celestials in this game. I think that's a highly powerful thing at second level. You will balance that better if that comes in on the sixth level and you kick the banishment up a bit. May have to adjust what CR levels it works on accordingly, but man problem with that is that it's totally against the model of the cleric like the model of the cleric is to go ahead and put that ability at eighth level and you're right it just doesn't it doesn't scale right and so that's why i mean we've said that before like tie things to proficiency bonus instead of you know instead of you know maybe maybe make it if they wanted to go ahead and say take wisdom and add it to a cantrip then you know your wisdom again by eighth level your wisdom might be a 20 so it might be plus five right but you know instead of wisdom say wisdom plus proficiency yeah Yeah, that would add the scaling to help it improve because otherwise Either the potent casting or the enhanced strike. Either one, that eighth level ability should be moved down. It shouldn't be level eight. Yeah, so I think the eighth level ability just add plus proficiency bonus. And now all of our gripes about it. You don't have to do anything funky like we were originally talking about. Just do that and we're and we're hitting this on all cylinders. And and then of course, top you know, if you're topping this off with oh with four spells, sixth, seventh, eighth, and ninth level wizard spells as domain spells, F that. You just got wish. You're a cleric with wish. And I believe Meteor Storm is still like an eighth. 
or something like that, which is stupid. Well, keep in mind that 17th level clerics have one spell slot each of those four spells. So, what they're prepared still, which means they can rack them off when they need them. To, which means you don't have to worry about preparing them. So what they've done is just doubled what they know. Yeah, you don't just have access to it; it's always available. So if you're not using it, like how many times have you said, "Man, I don't know what to do in this situation." Be nice if I had wish. Oh, that's right, I do. Yeah, that that took your bag of tricks and turned it into a bag of holding of tricks. Because wish spell can replace. Any ninth level spell. So think about what you did with that ability. You just expanded yourself to every ninth level spell in the game. And because you are a divine spellcaster, not an arcane spellcaster, there's no material component. Yep, done. That's 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 a game set match. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, I was wrong. He sits corrected. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wrong here. Like, Liwanika, much like I gave you the inspiration earlier, you have convinced me that my bottom-of-the-barrel ranking of the Arcana domain is wrong. So It paints a perfect picture of a priest of magic. Yeah. I mean, it really does. It, it does. And I got to tell you, I did not walk in here thinking this was going to be... I've heard a lot of shade thrown at the Arcana domain. A lot of shade in the community. And I don't know why that is, other than everything from Skag must be bad, because guess what? It was in Skag. And this was not... <laughs> I mean, so you got a bad abbreviation. Yeah, but let's be honest. This also was not brought forward. And in Adventure League, you're not playing this, because if most of the things in that book are bad, you're not picking this, because if you're playing PHP plus one, you're done. By the way, that rule is no longer in place moving forward. So maybe we might see a resurgence or a relook at this class. This is super good. This, look, I said at the beginning of the first episode in Cleric that this, the research for this episode opened my eyes and have made me really want to play a Cleric, I, where I have not really wanted to do so in 5e before. Um, and I have said a couple times, this is what I want to play. This is what I'm going to play. This is bloody brilliant. See, and I was thinking of a, I was thinking an Eladrin Arcana uh, a cleric would be so Maybe perfect. a Dragonborn. A Dragonborn could be really oh, yeah. cool with it. Yeah. Well, you know, anything could really do it, but uh, I actually thought an Elven Priest of Magic made a lot of sense, specifically because of how deep and how cool this was. I wanted it to be mysterious, and because it's so often unplayed, I thought an Eladrin was just ethereal enough, odd enough, and more deeply fey enough that this would be awesome. So I'm, I'm going to leave a question hanging here that I don't want us to answer. Can an Arcana Domain cleric become a lich? We might have to put some thought into that. Uh, no, we're good. We're, we're going to leave that hanging because... Might have to put some thought. Ladies and gentlemen, there's a lot of creative juices that you're not going to see now, but I can promise you. <laughs> I promise you. We're not on video. You can't see our creative juices. Yeah, you're going to realize how good this stew we're cooking is. <laughs> All right, let's move on. So we're going to dive into Xanathar's now and talk about, again, another kind of stereotypical, if I may, uh, battle cleric. Uh, we're going to talk about the forge cleric here. And, you know, the forge cleric, so heavily dwarven inspired, right? Like that's, that's, 
it more than just kind of the war domain. I mean, the Forge cleric is like the dwarven cleric of Moradin, who you know, who with the hammer and he the is anvil the trope. and the yeah, exactly. He is such the trope. Um, I loved the the fire elements of this character. I thought that the fire twist was a really, really neat one. Um, uh, you know, and I, I thought that it, it stacked up better, uh, mechanically than some of the other clerics, particularly like the light cleric. I thought it was a little bit better than that, particularly at level 17. Um, you know, when, when he gains immunity to fire and resistance to, to pretty much all other damage types, like, you know, to, to normal damage. Um, uh, yeah, I just thought, you know, just a neat, sort of tropey fun cleric type. While I thought this fits all the tropes uh, in all the right ways, what I found was very interesting was the fact that uh, this particular uh, domain also uh, can be used to fill a few different roles. I-, I looked at this as saying this was the Artificer before Artificer was cool. Before Artificer came out, this is what the fact that this was made is why somebody went back and said, I want to take this to the next level and made the artificer, which is not to take away from this, except for to say, if there's an artificer in your party and you have somebody playing this, you've got to really work some angles to figure out your role in the party mechanically and your role in the party in role play situations, because you're going to be doing pulling a lot of double duty with the artificer if you're not careful. It can be done without that, but you could accidentally step on t- on each other's toes. So just be aware of that. But the player that plays a Forge Cleric in one of my ongoing games, he plays a tank. He has the armor, the abilities, all the skill, all, everything he's done. He's, he's juice. He's the hardest character I have to hit, hands down. His AC is stupid. Stupid. When we've talked in previous episodes about do this or do that, this helps you contend with AC issues or makes dynamic issues in your campaign. Here's why. This subclass is why I learned those skills. This is why I had to, because it's hard to hit an AC 25 on a regular basis. Unless you're just saying, I hit them. If you're legitimately rolling dice and legitimately adding bonuses, hitting a 25 or a 26 if he puts up his shield spell or his mage armor or, or all these other things he can do, He's got a shield spell is what it is, or shield of faith. I'm sorry, that's the spell. If you're putting all those things together, it is hard to hit a forge cleric. <laughs> really hard. <laughs> and then, I mean, yeah, and what this did is it took that trope. It took the trope of, oh, and by the way, let me start out with just a, my first notes. Artisan priest. So for the the uh, artificer and the priest thing, we're right on the same page. Um, I have him as a feigned, a finder or maker, finder and or maker of lost relics and hill dwarf all day, twice on Sundays. Yep. They also get paladin smites. They've got searing smite right there at first level. I mean, that's a powerful, solid ass ability. Well, it's not a paladin smite. Let me rephrase that. They've also got searing smite, which is a bonus action right before you attack. I mean, so they're, they're a solid melee class too. What this did, it added that fire element, like you mentioned, Lee, it kind of like breathed that fire into it and reforged this domain to something that's a little bit more fresh. I went into it expecting it to just be tropey and just picture Moradin's hammer, but they made it more interesting with the little bits that they wove into it. Yeah, this was tempered by fire, 
but given elements and etchings of so many cool things, creation and all these other things. One thing that I didn't love about it was the, and I, I think maybe it's just like it felt like it didn't really do that much, but the, the, the ritual ability at second level where basically they can take an hour and create a non-magical item valued up to 100 gold coins, that kind of thing. Like, we talked about how, how, like, some of these subclasses can just get so specific. You know, I almost, I almost wonder, like, I don't know, like, like, now that I'm thinking about it, I can think of a million different uses There's for it. a million it. times you could need some kind of specialty equipment that you don't have that that could be handy for, but you're not wrong. It's kind of weird. An hour-long ritual, an hour-long, it just seemed weird. Yeah, that's that's really what it came down to. Is it, see, it yeah. was weird. An hour-long so ritual. you're not wrong about it being somewhat specific, but where we just did our episode on the Exploration Pillar, and we talked about if you are in a campaign where you make resources an issue, Think about the fact that you're in the, you're, as long as he's got the core elements of it, you give him an hour and he builds what you need if you're in the, on the mountain. Yeah, that's fair. The, the Forge Cleric in the game I'm running, he actually is a merchant as well. And in the earlier levels, like when the party traveled, they partied with his wagon of raw materials so that he was never caught out. Like literally, he's like, oh, I'll just make this for that. Or he would go places like try to put him in a situation where like you don't have enough money for that. He's like, are we going to be here for three days? In three days, I can put this many hours. I can do this and I will buy this or buy that to get us out of this. Like this became, and again, going into what roles are they going to fill in the game outside of the, the actual martial element of the game? This became the resource guy for the party. Like when they roll into town, he sets up shop. They need a reason to be in a place where they ought not be. He's their cover because he's the merchant. He's and like, are you really the merchant? Yes. Here are my wares. My symbol, which he designed very early on, is on all my gear. He's got this whole thing set up. And it was so well done that I get what you're saying, but there are ways it can be done. It's done exceptionally well in my game. As a storyteller, if you have a player who's playing one of these and is into it like that, just be prepared to answer lots of questions about the stuff he makes. Because I get a page. <laughs> I'm being facetious. But I would say after every session, I do get a list of, will I have enough time during this downtime to make X, Y, and Z? That happens. Storyteller world problems, right? Yeah. Okay. Let's go to the other subclass featured in Xanathar's. And Glenn, I'm going to give you a chance to shine because you ranked this domain so obscenely high. I need to hear what you saw in the grave domain. You ready to be sold? The floor is yours. Are you ready to you're, be wowed? You're, you're, your timer is on. <laughs> Please. The the timer does not apply to the, in this dojo. I'm sorry. <laughs> so here's the thing. And I'm going to start off with a little bit of what you mentioned earlier, because I read in one of the articles I was reading on D&D Beyond that was talking about cleric. It's uh, how to play a cleric or cleric 101. It's a really cool article, actually, for giving you different ideas. I think I wrote it down somewhere. But anyway, and it's talking about the evilness versus not wanting to have evil classes and that the death domain, the ne straight up necromancy, it's hard to say that's not going to land in the realm of evil. And but they compared Grave as being so close, but it's so, so not right. So right at the beginning of the Grave Domain, when he's talking to you about it, yeah, the gods that they're listing, and this is where I think people are getting stuck, tends to be evil gods uh, like Weejas. And I mean, the Undying Court is 
you never know which way that's going to go. Hades isn't specifically evil, but at any rate, it's the next part that really tells you what a grave cleric is. Followers of these deities seek to put wandering spirits to rest, destroy the undead, not make them. They are diametrically opposed to the undead and ease the suffering of the dying. They're next life midwives. They're hospice nurses. They're the house of black and white from Game of Thrones. And they're undead hunters. I mean, they're they're standing against the horror and the atrocity that is the undead while honoring a natural process. We all have to face death. Everybody does. They, if you were deserving, will help make your life help you pass more easily. They'll help ease your suffering. But if you deserve to be purged from this world and with undying righteousness, as a necromancer would for making the undead, then they'll send you into the next life, right? So then you look into their abilities and they just become so much more, so much more cool. Let me give you a mental picture. Have you seen the movie Priest with the post-vampire apocalypse, people living in a, in a walled city, the priests that go out and fight the undead? That's what these guys are. And oh my God, are they badass. If you'd seen that movie, you'd probably be with me. So for their, for their domain spells, they've got necrotic damage, which makes sense. And it does dip into the necrotic, the evilness, but it's not because they're specifically worshiping death. They just happen to have their fingers and the pie on both sides of death's door. They're sentinels at the door, right? So they can access that power of death to aid them in their calling. That comes from powers in their domain spells, give them also their raises. So they're all always ready to go. Raise dead, revivify. Those are domain spells. So they're ready. Like if the life cleric is the healer, the grave cleric is the reser. The grave cleric is the one who has the best shot of keeping people from actually dying. The life cleric will keep them alive. So then one of the next abilities that gets at first level, circle of morality. If the target's at zero, they get max heal dice at first level. So if one of your party members drop, that's when your heals are going to be the strongest to get them back on their feet and back in the game. I think that's a super solid bonus to the healing ability. That is a super solid ability. I will grant you that, yeah. Also... Spare the Dying becomes a bonus action with a range of 30 feet. That's insanely advantageous for one of the most used keep your friends from actually dying spells in the game because it's a cantrip. From Now it's 30 feet as a bonus action. If somebody goes down, you can make sure they're not suffering death saves. Or if they've missed a death save, I think Spare the Dying at range just by itself, let alone bonus action, is hot. Eyes of the Grave... I could see as it might seem a little bit lackluster, but it's dipping into the paladin abilities and it starts at level one, giving them basically the same ability to sense and locate undead, undead hunters. So I'm really sticking strong to that piece of it. Their channel divinity ability for any creature within 30 feet curse until the end of the next turn and they're vulnerable to the damage of the next attack, right? So whatever damage types coming in, especially if you know where you are in your initiative order, you can give vulnerability to that damage to your fighter, right? So you're speeding your opponent's process towards the grave. It's a huge debuff. A sentinel at death's door at six as your reaction to any critical hit to me or an ally within 30 feet. I can say, mm, it's not a critical hit anymore. And whatever effects that would have come from that critical hit, they don't apply. You're not killing my friend today. No, thank you. Potent spell casting. We've talked about how that's kind of meh. And then you got Keeper of Souls. At the end, their capstone ability, I think, could be a little bit better, but it's still pretty groovy. Any of me dies within 60 feet and you see it, you can capture a piece of their soul to heal yourself or an ally for the creature's hit dice, the number of hit dice that they have. It's not a large amount, 
and you can only do it once per turn, but it doesn't state, I do not believe, that it requires a bonus action either. It's just if they die. Yeah, the only thing, you can only use it once per turn. So I guess that's actually... So if you're dropping, if you're dropping enemies, basically, you're using that ability to... You're, when you're dropping minions, right? So we talk a lot about how to go ahead and build combat encounters, right? And so party, as they get stronger, you're throwing minions at them. Now, those one-hit dice minions are helping keep your party at full power. Right, because you can throw out small heals. I would rather that heal was a little bit bigger than just number of hit dice, but by the time you're 17th level, whatever it is is likely to have a solid number of hit dice. But since y'all didn't have the movie for Priest to help you out, let me give you another image for why I think the grave is so impressive, because I clearly haven't sold you. <laughs> All right. You've improved my thought on it, but you haven't sold me. Like, I can honestly go through and improve everything by one. And it would still be one of the lowest I rank. Okay. <laughs> Let me introduce you to the NPC that I designed around this concept that I'm apparently not describing very well. His name is Augustus Cater. And Augustus Cater is a protector Asimar, priest of the grave. And his diva, or guiding spirits, kind of tell him where he needs to go through the world. So he shows up, right? Killed my son. Augustus shows up and was able to resin. Because as a driving force within the campaign, his diva instructed him, hey, you know, you need to be here to take care of this. Doing a bad job again. Let me try again. Augustus is walking through the field of fallen dead with his hands outstretched and his eyes closed and his dusky gray priestly robes. His hands outstretched towards the fallen, feeling for that twist of fate that says this one still had great works left. And that's the one he rests. An agent of the gods, literally moving from place to place, the opposite of the trickster, nudging the line of life and death based on whether or not your hero who you set up as a part of a divine prophecy. So clearly the prophecy is wrong if he's dead and they can't res him. So I strongly like that from a NPC element. I really like that. Like really like that. That won't be the last you've heard of that idea. Um, that idea you sold me. I actually see some things. Yeah. That's, I think you did fine Glenn. Yeah. But I certainly don't think it's a better subclass taking good and evil out of it than the death domain. But I certainly see your point that they are distinctly different. I think anything I've read previously that equated the two is flat wrong. 100% wrong. Flat wrong. Like, no question. So I think you did a fantastic job of selling me on the differences, the inaccuracies in the reporting that have come before this podcast and a way to make this a better. So I would love to say I could go in and increase the wild card on this without hesitation or equivocation. I would absolutely do that. It's okay. I'll acknowledge that even in my own rereading that part of my gusto is centered 100% around Augustus and how he's influencing my world, and I can't give you great information there because I'll be spoiling stuff for my players, and what, uh, what a uh, useful plot point he could be. But as a player, you're right. I, I, I let my storyteller hat run away with me on this one, but it's still, it's awesome and it's not evil. It's not anything like death. It's awesome. And I will say, for want to play, I put it at five out of one, one out of ten because there was something about it that I was seeing, but I couldn't put my finger on. Oh. So kudos to you for giving me the ability to put my finger on it. I think there's something there. That, that's really good. I have to specifically give kudos to Trish because she's the one that turned me on to the Grave Cleric and got my wheels turning um, because when she was looking into it. But it's it's got a lot of potential and it could be 
really, really fun from the perspective of the Holy Warrior fighting against the armies of the undead. It would be an excellent Ravenloft domain. You even you even may have found the archetype that fits the true neutral character very well. They're not good, they're not bad, they're not lawful, they're not chaotic. They are dealing with the moment in the moment regardless of its trappings. Right. Well, Augustus does serve a good god, but you could create it as a pure a pure purely neutral god, neutral yeah. god who ra- would raise a creature that could have great deeds left to do whether they be unspeakably evil or yeah. unbelievably good. Okay. Glenn, fantastic job on that. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Let's carry on here to the Ravnica book and the Order domain. I think that with the Order domain, we've seen this subdomain already in a couple of different formats, right? It, it gets its heavy armor protection. It gets to impose some things. I think its best ability is probably at level six when it gets to take a standard action and move it into the bonus action phase. That, again, from, from an action economy point of view, is a really, really nice shift. But I don't think that there there is nothing in the sauce that really speaks out to me and says, yes, this is an amazing subclass. So... For me, I'm well known for loving playing heroes of Law and Order, right? My favorite characters over the years have all been uh, devotees of Tyr, a la the Forgotten Realms, with a significant homebrew bent that one of my early DMs gave to that deity in his world. And I have tried to take that into any world I play in that has that deity. Like, I will say... How does tier work in your world? Get that kind of take and say, could there be an order or a sect that views it slightly different? Like they recognize and honor those ways, but this is their particular take. And I'm generally told yes. So much to the point where I'm very consistent in how I play that deity in almost every, with almost every character I do. And a, a domain that is specific to that is awesome for me. Like I really like that. Like I find it exceptionally strong. I wish I had known about it years earlier because there's some things I would have probably done different in my own homebrew world. But unfortunately, those characters have already been met, so I wouldn't really change them at this at this point. Though I guess with Tasha, she could, in fact, do that. But I really like that element. And nothing for nothing, this has psychic damage. Like, we're tacking on a damage type that is not well-resisted unless you're fighting a Lithid. But it is also something that's different than everybody else for the twilight domain okay fair (laughs) the two from this book that has more psychic stuff than any other book have it so before now nobody has had this i think that speaks highly to flavor now all that to say all the things i love about it i didn't love significantly more than many others but i did like them significantly more than those below it So this came in really middle of the road for me, not because it's inherently bad. I really like what it does. Uh, I would play one. Uh, I would play one. And I don't think I'd have to be very specific as to the type of world as long as they're allowing this book to be used. And I would be perfectly fine and I'd have a great time in multiple pillars of of the game. We're all still talking about the Order Priest, right? Yes. Yes. I honestly expected both of you to be happier with this one than you are. I'm going to be honest because <laughs> yeah. it does. Yeah. It is its abilities don't nest quite as well as some of the other ones. So it makes its mechanics decent, but a little bit lackluster. It's set up to so play into how much you both like the banneret and the, 
the mounted knights and you know like the knightly orders this is a law priest that would be with war, a war sect of generals or commanders or a knight's order between the heavy armor and then intimidation or persuasion for command voice of authority that's 100 percent of command ability and now your healer, when he heals you, can now have your fighter as a reaction, making another weapon attack, which is kind of like some of the other abilities that you've been using, Lee, where you were able to give with your Warforged in, in the streams of Spiro, where you're able to give out abilities to other people, basically through your tactics, etc. This fits 100% into that style of uh, of party or order. So I really thought both of you would be all about it. So to be honest, I am all about it. The issue was when you mentioned the fact that the synergy wasn't there and the abilities didn't nest well with each other, that dropped it and it didn't quite get there. But I could definitely see an order of these guys being the police for a, a theocracy. So I think a better way to look at that is a lot of times we think of an order of knights and we think of them as all being one thing, but they wouldn't be. If you created a true order of knights, like if you created an actual titled, you know, surcoded order of knights, they're not just going to have fighters and they're not just going to have one type of fighter. They're going to have different specialties for command, for clerics, for, you know, so mixing those classes in to create that. I think this fits incredibly well into that style of group. So it could be a lot of fun to play. But, yeah, it's, it's not 100 percent there mechanically so it, it lands a little lackluster yep and i think that that's all that we're saying too is that it's just you know you're given the choice between an order cleric a war cleric a forge cleric and a light cleric who could all be kind of the face of the party or the leader of the party i don't know that order is the one that i'm gonna go, go i'm gonna go to so i might i might but and i really like what glenn said about doing a, a an order of knights like I could see the, the, the priests of an order of knights being this, as long as they had paladins of a specific type. Uh, the banneret would be the, uh, grunt fighters for, for this. Uh, a cavalier perhaps being the lieutenants or, or a battlemaster being, uh, a lieutenant or field commander. Um, you know, I could definitely see those elements. Bringing a paladin uh, from I'm a couple of different. Oaths and it'll it would work well in the same yeah. groups. Yeah, and 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 maybe a rogue scout or two, just cuz, just cuz. Okay, let's move on to our final book in the discussion of the domains. We finally made it to Tasha's Cauldron of Everything. Two subclasses featured in this one. We're going to start with the peace domain, which. I kind of dug. I thought that the mechanics on this one were pretty good. You know, you talked about that that priest that that basically is the buffing cleric, the one that really just kind of serves as support staff for everybody else in there. But really, more than anything else, what I loved about this and why I wanted, why I ranked it, gave it so many wild card points. What it reminded me of was in Rogue One, the Jedi who you know I am I am one with the Force, the Force is with me. The ability of a peace cleric to move through enemies and not attract attacks of opportunity is really, really powerful. And I really wish that he could have granted that to other people. <laughs> like, I wish, like, I think, like, that's the thing that, like, we're, no, we are, we are moving through this group of stormtroopers and they're not going to suspect a thing because we're just, because of just who we are, we're just moving with purpose and no one is going to suspect, you know, these, these are not the droids you're looking for. We're just going to move right on, right on past. I like a lot of the RP of this particular class. 
like really fell for like I there's something about it I wanted to see. Uh I thought of a more monastic tradition. Yeah, absolutely. I thought this would synergize greatly, depending on which monkly order you're gonna do, put a monk with this. I was thinking of uh Cho Young Fat, bulletproof monk. This was one of the ones that I was thinking of and, and trying to find that. Like, I love that movie, Bulletproof Monk, a lot. So I, I'm always looking for D&D to give me what it takes to make that character sing. And I don't think I'm quite there yet. Like, th- this is not exactly it, but you could get all the right shadings of that with a good multi-class. Uh, uh, finding where to make that multi-class because, you know, some of the abilities are a little higher up to get some of the cool stuff. But I, I liked it. I think it did a lot of really cool things. You know, I want to play it-ish. Uh, but again, this falls into, am I going to be in the right type of campaign where I get to shine doing this? And maybe that speaks to me more as a player than than any of the classes I look. I do evaluate that element by what would I really enjoy playing. And I don't know if I'd quite get there. As an NPC, yeah, all day. I got a couple different ways to do that. They would probably come out of a monastic tradition. I can see people like this populating my world. When they start looking at the mechanics and seeing how they drop, they go, they just fell less than other things. Good stuff, less than other things. For flavor, maybe I was a little tied too much to the mechanics on this. I think the flavor upon second read and our discussion, I'm feeling the flavor a lot more. But again... Am I feeling it more than the other stuff? Ranking it, it just continues to drop. And I think it unfortunately falls lower down because of that. Now, maybe I might think differently if I've seen one in play. This is a relatively new book. I have never seen one of these at a table. I have seen all of the others at a table, not the arcane, but I've seen most of the others at a table at least once. I've written, if not for anything else, for uh, pre-gen characters almost every other time. So maybe I just need more experience. So for me, I mean, I thought this was like exactly like we said earlier, the classic buff priest to a degree. But the way that I took it wasn't towards monastic orders. It was towards an order of diplomat and arbitrators um, that were sent out to whether it was because they were working with a specific group or, you know, I mean, these are the priests that could serve beside kings, could help negotiate peace treaties. And as a player, too, though, I mean, it captured me. This one, I ranked it 10 for wildcard max score because it totally surprised me. When I read peace, I was like, meh. I mean, yeah, I could play a pacifist cleric and have a good time. That's what went through my head. Uh, But so, so, so underestimating it uh, in terms of the flavor and just the way that it works. Um, the domain spells focus on buff and support, as you'd expect. And the skill choice at the beginning, implement peace, you get to choose one skill of insight, performance, or persuasion. Meh, it's a little lackluster. But the bond and what they can do with your party, especially as their proficiency number goes up, is super cool. So as an action, at first level, they can form a bond that lasts for 10 minutes with a number of people equal to their proficient between a number of people equal to their proficiency bonus. So like they don't have to be in it. They could set it up between two people on the front line, I believe. And then for the rest of that, as long as they stay within 30 for the rest of that 10 minutes, as long as they stay within 30 feet of each other, they get an additional D four that they can apply to, to any one roll per turn attack or damage. And I don't really like it when they cross because attack and damage are two totally different numbers to be able to put the same modifier on them. But when you're talking about a D4, that's not so bad. And at first level, that's actually pretty damn powerful. 
right? And then Balm of Peace, which you mentioned, Josh, the, their channel divinity ability to basically be so calm, they're just not a threat. But when the protective bond gets bigger at sixth level, now they can, as long as they're within 30 feet of each other, now they can teleport to within five feet of someone taking damage and take the hit instead if they're bonded. So in terms like setting up your, your front line to be able to defend itself or your weakest player to be able to make sure that the tank can step in and keeps Tristana from going down for the fourth time in a fight <laughs> by just absorbing, sorry, Tristana, by just absorbing the entire blow, uh, that, that's hot. Potent spellcasting, again, meh. But then even when you get to their capstone, expansive bond isn't amazing, but it's pretty solid because now your bond abilities go out to 60 feet. And when you use that teleport, the protector who's taking the entire hit gets resistance. So is it super? No. But for an overall buff assist cleric, I could have a great time playing it from that diplomat arbitrator perspective um, with all of these pieces. And you know what? I'd make it a hobgoblin because they've already got the group bond thing going on with the gift of fey aid and stuff. That would that could, that could be pretty cool. So I, I, I ranked it a high up there on I'd like to play. It's not top of the list, but it's top three. Yeah, so dovetailing from what you said, you take a hobgoblin or you take anything that's got a charisma stat modifier, and because your skill choice is going to be in that charisma area, you make your second stat charisma, and all of a sudden you're dropping big dice uh, or big numbers on those checks, which really fulfill that role. So I could certainly see through the flavor being better. I don't know if it's better than the one above the ones I ranked above it, but. Certainly better than I was thinking. Okay, let's move to our last one from Tasha's. And this was, I really enjoyed the flavor of this domain, but it, it kind of kept sliding down the list as other ones, as I, as I scored other ones. And this is the Twilight Domain. And when I first read the Twilight Domain, I didn't really get a good sense for what this domain was for. I'm not going to rail on the fact that it's got dark vision other than to go ahead and say, like, why dark vision? But then I figured it out. This is the, like, overnight sentry character that is high, is, that is specialized on making sure that the party stays safe at the campsite while your wizards are regaining their spells and, and everything like that, right? And so it's like, it, that's this character. And again, we talked about, about how, you know, it's the Tempest that gets basically fly at level 17. Twilight gets fly at level 6. So they could have restructured Tempest to go ahead and give give that ability earlier uh, and, and actively chose not to, to its detriment. I'm not sure how you got to Tempest from, from Twilight. Y'all didn't see me shaking my fist at that, but I did. For me, looking at this, I was kind of like you. I don't think I really picked up on how what it was all about when I was reading Tosses when we did our big four episode review of Tosses, which was wonderful. I love that episode. Those episodes love those reviews. Thought we really did some deep dives. But what I realized uh, as we continue to do this podcast is there is still so much within that book that we have barely touched on. And interestingly enough, in order to pick out some of the good stuff, we had to actually do an episode reviewing an entire class, subclass by subclass, before we realized some of the coolness that was within this book in Tasha's. Because I wasn't thinking cleric. I'm thinking clerics or clerics, whatever. And uh, they had some neat new stuff. And I was kind of looking at it. It seems neat, but I moved on and didn't give it that deep look that this research has provided. I flagged a hundred things in Tasha's the first time around and did not flag any of these cleric classes. So, you know, 
goes to show you how, how easy how, it goes to show you how good that book was and how easy it was to overlook some of the cool stuff. Yeah. And I will say this, uh, going back to a point that Josh uh, made a lot during those uh, earlier Tasha's episodes was the flavor and the jokes that Tasha writes in are on point. And specifically with this one, Tasha writes and I quote, I can't believe I'm writing this, but I think I could get behind a faith focused on mood lighting and evening wear. <laughs> I mean, come on. <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's that is at the table comedy goal. Yeah, that's good. At the table comedy goal. But there's things about this that I could really like. Uh, I mean, I have a very interesting element to my homebrew game that has a lot of things going on mystically in a special order and all these things. And I think I am thinking very certainly that I'm going to add a Twilight Domain cleric as one of my NPCs for this because there are just things about it that are just cool because there's a lot of them and they're cool. I like a lot of this, but again, better than average as far as wanting to play it. But its mechanics fell really short. I think there's things about it I really, really like and that I will make use of in an NPC fashion, but I think would fall flat at a table trying to make them work. A sentry is a useful position, but I would struggle as a player trying to play it. And again, that's that's kind of the specific thing. If they make it too specific, it makes it tough to make it fit. I mean, for this one, it really is all about looking what the role is. I mean, you could take the easy answer and just call it an underdark priest, but that's not what it is. I mean, if you're playing an underdark campaign, not a bad choice. He'll shine there. But, you know, when you were talking about the guy standing watch at the edge of the firelight, that's exactly what it is. Or in another setting... He's the guy standing at the edge of the village with his eyes scanning the darkness to make sure everybody makes it in and inside the walls before the gates close. You know, from that perspective, his dark vision does make sense. And he gets it out to 300 feet. I mean, that's further than normal by quite a lot. Yeah, it's actually further than improved dark vision. Right. And he can, as an action, he can share that with his wisdom modifier and creatures. So all of the people helping him hunt that darkness for the farmer who didn't come back to it from his field or the the girl who didn't come back from the forest where she was collecting berries or what have you. He can share that with them, even if it's a human village. So from that perspective, I think I underscored it on flavor because they do nest really well from that perspective. But overall, it just kind of felt lackluster and afterthought-ish, you know, like the way that some of it goes. Aside from those thoughts, you know, the Twilight Sanctuary ability for his dim light and can already cast light. I'm going to disagree on that. I don't think it was lackluster. I actually think it went too, I actually think it went too far. I think it's a little overpowered. And if you look at the if you look at the second level ability Twilight Sanctuary, right? So as an action, you can set up that sphere of light, right? 30 foot radius. Sphere moves. You don't have you don't have to take an action to move it. It just moves with you. It lasts for one minute or ten rounds. And that's kind of the, the key piece. 10 rounds, unless I get incapacitated or die. Whenever a creature enters or ends its turn in the sphere, that creature gets D6 plus my cleric level hit points, temporary hit points, and you can end the charmed or frightened at second level. So remember earlier when we were talking about the ability to go ahead and say, oh, that's right, you got a spell effect on you? No, you don't. It's gone, right? And how powerful that was. This guy gets it at second level, and it comes with a temporary hit point buff. So think about a 30-foot radius, right? 30-foot radius, you can fit your entire party within a 30-foot radius. And all they need to do is stay within that radius for 10 rounds. They never leave. If they never leave that radius, they will get D6 plus, if I'm at second level, D6 plus two hit po- temporary hit points 
every round. Those temporary hit points don't go away until the end of the combat. You are correct, but temporary hit points also don't stack. But every time you take damage, they just replenish, which is hot. I misread this, and that does actually bring it up a little bit more. Okay, well, wait, so, okay, so temporary hit points don't stack, but... No, if I hit you and you take five damage, the next turn you get 1d6 temp hit points back when you end your turn. It's, it's a permaheal of temps. It is still exceptionally powerful. However, at second level, you're talking two hit dice for each of your characters. You're adding a d6. While that is a hit die for some of the lower style, it is half a hit die for the others. And it's an actual die roll. So you're averaging three hit points. That's fine. But it's for 10 minutes for everybody. That's hot. Right, right. So it is... It could be two hit points in its It is definitely keeping your party back on average for an extra two rounds. But at second level, that is not game break. No, but at 15th level... At 15th level, it's only 15 hit points. And again, you're going against... Okay, so... Up to 21 hit points. Okay. When I read it, I thought it said you could only get it once. I misread it. I didn't catch that it was every time you end your turn inside the radius. That does make it much more powerful than I thought. I truly believe it is powerful. I don't know about game breaking, but it is powerful. I don't. It is powerful. I strongly believe it's powerful. Actually, had I read that fully and got that element, of, I probably would have ranked its mechanics a little higher. But I will say this. It is not game breaking because at 10th level, I've got a barbarian that's dropping somewhere between 50 and 60 in a round. 20 is less than he rolls when he rolls back. Wait, how is a barbarian dropping 50 hit points in a round? Uh, two attacks. Yeah. Uh, great weapon. Okay. Uh, so charger. D12. Okay. Yeah. He's how got are we a comparing weapon. the number of attacks and damage somebody can do to a Twilight well, here, Priest domain? Here, right. Here, I'm trying to figure out how they're doing 60 points of damage in a round. We're not doing apples to oranges. We're doing like orangutans. Right, but to... what I'm saying is, the point is that if the damage being done in a round is somewhere in the 50 to 60 range and you're healing 20, you're still not healing nearly as much as the damage being done in that same round. But no action has to be taken. You don't have to do a damn thing but stand there. Like I said, powerful, not game-breaking, because it's not going to be enough to keep you up indefinitely. I, I would let my swashbuckler run with a, tw- with a Twilight Sanctuary priest every day of the week. Yep. I can stand at the very edge of your 30 feet, run ahead, attack, disengage, and run back, and regain any hit points you may have had the opportunity to go ahead and hit me with. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be undefeatable to be game-breaking. It just has to be much more powerful than anybody else has the ability to compete with. But I don't know if it's game-breaking still. There's a lot of abilities out there that are powerful. It, if you as a cleric are at 17th level, now, now not only do I run back and get hit points, but now I also get half cover for doing it. Okay. Rogues, rogues break lots of shit. I'll take that. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, Twilight Sanctuary is a hot right. ability. Let's, uh... And, I mean, and they get flight at six? Yeah. All right. And dim light? Yeah, you're, totally. you're saying all right, like you're about to try to wrap something up. Yeah. Well, no, it, it, that's... I have I'm a just final gonna, thing I, at least I was, that but I if you want to keep talking, go ahead. Twilight. Yeah, yeah, no, go, right. go ahead, go into so, your final thing then. Yeah, I definitely think I underscored it a little bit, which we've all discussed. Some pros and cons, some heated discussions, some arguments even, maybe. But, in the end, despite the fact that I didn't think on original reading that the mechanics were that great, or that the flavor they gave it was that great, but I'm liking it more now, a part of that's from the concept I came up with it, I could totally get behind, and I ranked it like uh, in the top three of want-to-plays, I could totally get behind playing that character who helps beat bat- 
back to darkness, that sentinel against the darkness, especially with Ravenloft dropping tomorrow. Well, I can't say tomorrow because this is going to be the second episode and you already said last week. So especially with Ravenloft that dropped last week, (laughs) I I would say that I would have to play this as a reborn. Because sometimes to fight the darkness, you have to be reborn into it. I like the thought so much that I, we we talked uh, episodes ago about Oompenshire and how that was a nice town and Gomley was going to be our drunk bartender. Here's my point, though. I actually think in order to have horror work well, you have to have that tension break. And I think Gomley and a name like Oompenshire is that tension break like you come in it's got a goofy name how bad can this town really be and have dude my bad i didn't mean to start a tangent no no no. it's not a tangent this is where i was going i like this character being the captain of the town guard the ability for this person to stand the watchtower and grant it to its other people while they're on watch this sounds like a great captain of the town guard it's 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 unusual night watch captain yeah there you go yeah night watch captain so or even, or maybe, maybe not the captain of the entire guard, but like the sergeant in charge of the night. Yeah, and NPC wise, it's like got that. lots of potential that way. But you know, I think it's got player know, potential you know, too. I could have a blast up, with it. Up at night, sleeps during the day to regain, takes their long rest during the day. You know that kind of thing. You know, not it wasn't great for me, but I think I'd have to be in the right campaign to make to to to, to feel I could make it work. All right, so we have now talked through two episodes uh close to three hours of cleric talk we hope that all of you who have been asking for more class rankings are 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 happy a shout out to our fans who keep asking us when the next episode is going to come out here you go three hours of cleric talk let's go down the list through the domains and the their final ranking when we average all of our scores and everything like that so at the top of the list was the tempest cleric after that was the death cleric the War Cleric, the Forge Cleric, and the Peace Cleric. Thank you very much to Glenn for bumping up Peace uh, up into the top five there. Next one was the Grave Cleric. Thank you again, Glenn, for (laughs) way spiking up the Grave Cleric scores there and and a fabulous uh, breakdown of it. The Life Cleric, the Arcana Cleric, the Order Cleric, which all of us scored pretty similarly. Uh, And then rounding out our, our, our bottom five were the Knowledge Cleric, the Twilight Cleric, which we just talked about, uh, the light cleric, the trickery cleric, and the nature cleric. So that was how we ranked it. And, and you know, really, again, underscore a point that we made kind of in the introduction of episode one, this was tough because anytime I'm looking at any particular cleric domain, it's my favorite one. And then as soon as I move on to the next one, it's like, oh, wait, no, no, nope. That one's my favorite one. And so I, it was really, really tough uh, to go ahead and kind of nail down what I liked most, how I, I wanted to play, what I didn't want to play, all those sorts of things. So this was a really, a really, really challenging one. And I, I think that, uh, I think that our analysis kind of, kind of bore that to fruit that, uh, you know, any of these scores I think could have gone any particular direction. And so trying to find, uh, having 14 subclasses within such a small uh, range of points at the end of the day, uh, is, uh, is I think a really telling sort of characteristic. I'd agree. I would definitely agree. And I think if you look at our individual top fives, there's a lot of, or even our individual top fours, 
you're going to find just enough variance between our opinions, a lot of consistency, but just enough variance where three separate people who often run three separate tables or uh, and play at many different tables came up with multiple answers to how can I have fun? I And, and we all came to one conclusion that Cleric as a class, so Glenn knew it all Not along. Not all along, just for the last 20 years. Was a <laughs> superior class. It's very cool. And in the community... It's actually much better than I thought it was, yeah. And in the no, t- you taught me that. And that was like 19 yeah. or so. Um, I started playing you know, it. Basically day two of him ever playing a tabletop game. My bad. <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Yeah, okay, so 10 years in. Um, I want to say that the community has long since said Cleric is strong. Uh, the fact that they're at every table speaks to that. The fact that they are very consistently probably a select group of subclasses that are often played speaks to the fact that not enough people have done a deep dive. So I encourage people, get out to your local stores, get these books if you don't already have them, read up on these classes, and the next time you're in a game and there's a role to be played, find a different way to play it. Pick something that you like. Always pick something that you have fun with, but find a different spin you can put on it. A little extra taste, a little extra flavor, a little different way to do it. Use... Episodes like this and podcasts like ourselves and some of our friends that we that we join and collaborate with as ways to, and ways, means and reasons to change up the norm. So the next cleric you play doesn't have to just be a life cleric. Maybe they're going to be something a little different. So, yeah, my greatest takeaway from cleric or that I'd want you all to leave with is when you hear cleric, don't think priest, don't think healer, don't think stereotype. A cleric can be anything. You can pick any role in the party and fill it with a cleric, almost, or pretty darn close. So don't be afraid to play one if your party's short one. Don't be like, oh, the cleric. Instead, look into the options and find the one that makes you go, damn, that's a nice cleric, and have a great time. All right, gentlemen, thank you very much. I, this was, I think this might actually be my most fun uh, sub-ranking uh edition that we've done so far just because of how much I learned about Cleric on the way by so fabulous suggestion thank you everybody for the audience for voting for Cleric the the next poll will be out shortly so keep an eye out for that there was some uh, there was some contention last time around I really thought that that uh, Warlock might have pulled out you know we'll uh not Warlock we've already done Warlock which no, one Warlock was the one uh, we did Sorcerer first. Warlock was the one okay yeah yep that's right. That's right. We did Sorcerer. That's right. Yeah, I, I really thought that Warlock was going to pull it out, but uh, Cleric went out in the end. So be watching for the poll. We will be looking for your feedback. And uh, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed. And by the way, share with everybody else, because the more people voting, the more uh, opinions we get to bring in. Tell us your thoughts. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you'd like to see. All right. Night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This has been Tabletop Journeys. We would love to hear your feedback on our show today. You can join us at www.ttjourneys.com, where you can subscribe to the blog to leave comments and see all the content that we publish beyond the podcast. And make sure you join our growing online community. You can follow us on Twitter at TT Journeys and join us on Facebook just by searching Tabletop Journeys there. You can also reach us by email at podcast at ttjourneys.com. And if you want to catch early access to our episodes and some of the other benefits we have coming down the pipeline, you can also support our production at patreon.com slash ttjourneys. If you're listening to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Podchaser, Spotify, Audible, or any other podcast platform, we would really appreciate if you would like and subscribe to the podcast. Full episodes come out every week on Saturdays and every Wednesdays. We'll feature our SideQuest series where we talk about pretty much anything tabletop-oriented.
Thank you all so much for listening and for being a part of our growing community. And in the words of another traveler on our path, we bid you shade and sweet water.